0: The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. We've got an interesting program to kick off our live shows again. We are going to be talking to two guests tonight. In the first part of our program, Char Westfall is a Navy SEAL widow. And she's the author of a book called A Beautiful Tragedy a Navy SEAL widow's permission to grieve and a prescription for hope. Her husband was killed in a very, uh, um, publicized, uh, I guess it would be considered a mission in Afghanistan. Um, he was with 19 or maybe he and 18 other, uh, SEAL team members. And, um, only one of them survived this particular mission. And it obviously without, without, uh, Much explanation needed, you know that it changed Char Westfall's life. And it changed it in some very dark ways uh, until she got a little bit of help. And when she got that help, she was able to recover. And she actually found some uh, inspiration in the tragic events. And she ended up writing the book, again, called A Beautiful Tragedy. And then later in the program, we've got returning guest Frank Joseph coming back. He's going to talk more about ancient technology Of ancient civilizations, we're going to talk about the Egyptians. We're going to talk about the um, the Aztecs, the Mayans. We're going to delve back into history and talk about some of these unbelievable feats of engineering and other um, what we would consider to be somewhat anomalous activity that may point to some very advanced technologies that those civilizations had that we weren't or aren't aware, or at least hadn't been aware. of of them having, because they seem to have been lost uh, through time. And Frank uh, will talk about that. He's a great guest. I'm looking forward to having him on. He also, I think the last time he was on, we we talked um, about his book, uh, Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials, something like that. I don't remember the exact title. Actually, if I look here, I could probably tell you. Uh, Yeah, it was called... um, yeah, I'm not seeing here. But it, we talked about these military encounters uh, with extraterrestrials, and given the new uh, revelations, I guess from the defense, defense Department and those some people that have worked for the Defense Department, uh, I'm going to get his his reaction to some of that news. We've been talking about it sporadically, so I'm curious as to see to see what he thinks of that and um, get his his take on all of that so we have a lot to do tonight and um, two guests to fit in I will tell you that we've got some great shows coming up as well tomorrow night there is a bit of a schedule change a guest change that I have to work around so slick Eddie and I are working on that uh, Thursday night Arlen Schumer will be on the program he is going to talk about t- the Twilight Zone series plus science fiction's effects on pop culture that's going to be very interesting I'm a real real Twilight Zone fan and a real Rod Serling fan. One of the first shows that we did for Beyond Reality, we had a guest by the name, oh man, I'm going to forget his name now, Doug, um, mm, it'll come to me. Can't remember his last name for the moment. But he was personal friends with Rod Serling, and he was also a uh, an expert on the Twilight Zone and, and Rod's life. And the most fascinating guest, um, I had such a great time having him on the program. He actually lived pretty close to me when I was living in Syracuse, New York. He has since moved, or he had moved to, to Texas and uh, was living there, so he was less accessible, although it doesn't really matter, I suppose. I'd like to get him back on the program, if I can remember his last name. <laughs> That's just me recovering from vacation, right? Um, but uh, so, yeah, so uh, Thursday night we'll be talking with Arlen Schumer about the Twilight Zone and other sci-fi cultural implications. And then mon- Monday night, Alfonso um, Colasuno will be with us to talk about the um, legend and mystery of the unicorn. That sounds pretty interesting. So a lot of great stuff coming up on the show. Looking forward to it all. And, of course, again, looking forward to being here with all of you. Um, I do want to um, mention that we've had a lot of subscriptions on our Twitch channel uh, expire And that's because a lot of people expire with the or excuse me, subscribe with their uh, Amazon Prime account. And you've got to renew it each month. It's free to do that. But you just got to remake the connection every month. And that way that that subscription continues. So please, uh, in in the Twitch channel, re up those subscriptions. We had a whole bunch of them drop off over the last few days. We weren't streaming to Twitch, so you probably didn't get notifications with the best of programs. We just do those on YouTube. So a lot of stuff to do. We have a lot of things to catch up on, don't we? we do all right we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we'll bring our first guest of the night in shar westfall will be with us we'll be talking about her book a navy seal or excuse me a beautiful tragedy a navy seal widow's permission to grieve and a prescription for hope please support the program go to patreon.com slash joe that's j-o-h-a-w
1: this episode is brought to you by visit
0: williamsburg Great to have everybody along with us tonight as we kick off a return from vacation. Everybody's been asking, are you rested? I don't think anybody ever really gets rest when they're on vacation. In fact, you try to cram so much stuff in that you end up being exhausted by the end of it. And then, um, you come back to work and you're, and that's when you kind of have to catch up on your rest. But fortunately, Um, Our discussions are such here that uh, I don't need a whole lot of rest because it's just very, very interesting. And tonight is no exception. As I said, we've got Frank Joseph coming up a little bit later in the show to talk about ancient technologies of ancient civilizations. But first, we've got a very uh, sober and serious discussion that we need to have here tonight. Our first guest is Char Westfall. She's a wife a mother, a Christian. She's also the surviving widow of a Navy SEAL by the name of Jacques Fontaine, who was killed in action during the rescue mission depicted in the book and the movie known as Lone Survivor. Cher, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's such an honor to have you here tonight.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, first of all, um, and I'm very sorry for your loss. Uh, your your husband, obviously an American hero. And I think one of the points that your book makes very strongly is that the heroes don't um you know end with the tragedy that 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 sentiment and that feeling extends to the family that was there to support that hero and it extends to the survivors so in in you know a, a short description um can you tell us what happened tell us what happened to your husband
1: um so back on June 28th of 2005 There was supposed to be just a simple mission um, in Afghanistan. Four guys were going to go out, do a little reconnaissance mission, and, you know, be done, be picked up and and come back. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, unfortunately, they were um, compromised their location by some sheep herders. And what I like to say, you know, to people is that in the movie, Belind Survivor, it really shows how different our military is, the kind of standard, the rules that we have to go by. And so even though you can kind of tell that they in their minds are like, Well, this is not good, you know, we shouldn't let them go, you know, this is gonna not, you know, turn out very well for us because they didn't feel a threat at the time. They let them go, um, which then one came back and went back and told the Taliban, and you know they were compromised and came under attack. Then group back at the base jumped on some helicopters and went to go give them some assistance and rescue them. And unfortunately, um, one of the guys on the ground, you know, one of the Taliban, got off a um, a lucky shot, and I was able to shoot down one of the two helicopters that went out. Um, with my first husband being one of the guys on that helicopter. Mm. And so that day, um, thankfully, there was one survivor from that day, which is where the movie came from. But um, we lost a total of 19 that day, unfortunately, which is, um, I want to say there was 11, I don't know how many SEALs total off off the top of my head, Um, but it was the biggest loss for the SEAL community since the Vietnam War, so it was um, between the SEALs and the Army that day. Lost them nineteen guys, and it was it was a yeah you know, pretty big loss for sure.
0: Yeah, well, obviously a very personal loss for you right. and and many other people. Um, in addition to a loss for the country. But you, you said something in that in that description that I find very interesting. You said because of the rules that our military follows. I'm assuming you mean that we see unarmed civilians, we give them the benefit of the doubt, even though we may suspect that they have uh, some kind of uh, nefarious motives uh, that could come back to haunt us. Is that what you meant by that?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's just just the way that we... Our military is you know required to 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 work by it I yeah. mean fortunately and unfortunately, because a lot of the times it's you know doesn't work out for the best
0: yeah I, I think sure. I think you're absolutely right. I think um, our our boys and girls in the military probably put themselves at far greater risk by taking that approach, but they would rather err on that side than err on the other side, which would be harming, detaining or killing an innocent civilian. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. So you were dealt an unbelievable blow back in 2005. Tell me how it changed your life.
1: You know, I went from being, you know, 29 years old, getting ready to um, start a family. We had waited to have children. Jacques had um, a child from a previous marriage. And so we had both decided that, you know, we wanted him around. He had been in the military for about 16 years at that point. And so here I was like 29 years old, young, married, thinking I had, you know, my whole life ahead of me with this, you know, this man that I loved and, you know, in a blink of an eye, I was a 29 year old widow with no children, no husband and like starting over and just kind of feeling, you know, completely lost and alone for sure. It was yeah
0: how long that's how long I
1: like, never think <laughs>
0: yeah no this that's the type of thing you never think is going to happen to you even though you knew i mean your husband was in the military he was in afghanistan a hot war zone uh but you still don't think it's going to happen to you how long had you been married at that point
1: we've been married for just short of five years together for i think almost 10. wow
0: yeah um you turned you you turned uh into some dark places after that um you started to withdraw um you had you were uh, a a believer in god and you you blamed god maybe even forsake for god uh tell me tell me how your reaction in that respect was
1: yeah i was definitely very angry very confused very hurt um i had been in church on sunday saying my prayers, keep him safe, and then, you know, two days later, turn around and have, you know, them showing up at your doorstep telling you that he's gone. And um, I just didn't understand, I guess. Um, I don't think any of us can. Right. often tell a lot of people, like, we're a lot of us are never going to understand that why. Um, but thankfully, even though in the first year I did turn away from God, I wanted nothing to do with him. Um, not that I was like I don't believe in him, but I just I wasn't craving a relationship anymore with him. And um I wasn't going to church and it was about I guess just shy of like a year, right at the year mark after Jacques had died that I realized how angry I was. It was mm-hmm. becoming more apparent. Um and so that's when I finally was like, Okay, I need some help, I need some counseling, um, a person actually my now husband who was my f- a friend at the time throughout that year would, you know, why don't you come to church, just come to church. And he recently told a story about how he would sit and watch me and I was just so angry, you know, my hands and a fist and, um, and saying, hopefully, you know, just if one droplet gets in her heart, you know, it'll slowly you know soften her and she'll come back around. And, um, so I did, I, I went to counseling and, um, that was a big turning point for me, I would say, in my grief and in my anger.
0: How did the military treat you uh, when this all occurred?
1: The military was good. Um, the hard part was that SEAL Team 10, who we were, Jacques was attached to and with, they were pretty much all gone over there. Um, and so it was a lot for them to handle. We had a large group of us in Virginia, you know, the rest of um Hawaii, California, and so, um, thankfully, I had a lot of people at my house at the time, um, so I wasn't alone when they came and knocked on my door. Uh, I know a couple of the girls were, so that was something that a lot of the girls have um, had a hard time dealing with in the beginning, um, but it's just, in general, it's a huge change for you. I mean, I went... To go get my military ID, and you know, it's all of a sudden it just says, you know, unremarried widow is yeah. what's on your ID card, and you're just kind of like, Whoa, yeah, <laughs> this is <laughs> this is a lot different, nothing I would have thought of. Um, so they did their best, um, and uh, I can't, I don't have many complaints about that.
0: So, the title of your book is A Beautiful Tragedy, which you know, on the surface, seems like a bit of an oxymoron. Explain what the title means and what the message is that you're telling with the with the uh, writing of the book.
1: Yes, so we, we discussed this a lot, just going back and forth, uh, because it does sound like, how can you call a tragedy as a loss, like, so beautiful? And what we find the beauty in is how I have been able to turn this tragedy, you know, back around and it not be something that completely defines me and has controlled my life. Um, I was able to pick myself up and start dating again, find love again, get married, and have a family, all the things that I thought I lost um, that day on June 28th, and um, just honor Jacques by continuing to live. And so that's just kind of we said, you know, I think this actually works and went with it, (laughs) hoping that people would kind of understand, you know, that.
0: Do you feel that your story is serves as a good example for other people who might be uh, dealing with tragic loss?
1: That's my hope. I mean, I don't pretend to know how everybody's grief goes and how they deal with it and what's going to work for them. Um, but my husband, he goes, I remember, Always saying, I just feel so alone. I feel like nobody understands me. Um, you know, am I crazy? Is this what, you know, is this what I'm supposed to do? Is this how I'm supposed to feel? And he, you know, said, maybe you should write all your feelings down and what you went through. And if it helps one person, then you've made a difference. And so that was the hope in sharing it.
0: Um. How long after the tragedy, you said that was 2005, June 28th, I think you said, how long yeah. after that did you start to feel like you were coming out of that darkness? And then from that point on, when did you decide, you know what, I need to share this story?
1: I'd say it was once I started going to counseling. Um, I didn't think I needed counseling in the beginning because for some reason I thought that counseling was just for somebody who couldn't accept what happened to them or, and that couldn't be further from the truth. So once I went there and realized that they were going to help me deal with certain emotions and confusion and, you know, all that kind of stuff, it just was like this huge weight was lifted off my shoulders. And so it was probably right around the year to year and a half that I was like, okay, I'm coming out of the fog. And then, um, I would say, I think it was around the time I was, I was pregnant with my second child. So like 2011, um, my husband and a, and a friend, um, had both said to me, you really should write this down. You really should talk to people about your struggles with grief, your struggles with your faith. Um, and you know, it could help other people. There's not books out there like that, that just give a very raw, simple, version of grief and so that's just kind of where um it came about and how it came about
0: did you find that process when you started to write this down i'm not so sure that you intended to make it a book when you first started but um, as you were writing these thoughts down and you were thinking about them did you find that to be a healing process or did it make you in some way relive um what you might consider to have been of the most trying time of your life
1: i would say both it was very um I would hear things in church or, you know, just think about things in a different way. Somebody would, would ask me to, oh, can you call my friend? They just lost their husband. Mm-hmm. And just talking and talking to them and just different things that would come to me, I would write them down because I'd be like, this helps me. You know, Maybe this would help somebody else the next time I talk to them. And so um, that is where it came from. I mean, just as far as, like, writing it down, you're right. I didn't think it was going to become a book. I just kind of would... Write things down and say, Oh, maybe this will help somebody next time that I'm talking to them. And um so that's what I did. But then when we, we did the book and um it was years in the making and I actually didn't even think it was gonna happen. Um, when it finally did to go back and have all the edits, that was definitely hard to just mm. kind of reread a lot of right. the beginning things and what my my family went through watching me, those were really difficult.
0: You know, um, this might be a little bit off topic, but I do see a connection. Um, When um, someone gives everything for serving their country, as your husband did, I think a lot of people don't realize that the family that that soldier has left behind gave everything to. He was yours. Um, He was, you know, his family's, um, and they all lost as well. And then we look around the nation today. I mean, you know, you see professional athletes kneeling for the national anthem and disrespecting the flag and, in my opinion, the whole country. And you see people in the streets beating each other up for whatever cause they think they're there for. How does somebody who gave everything in the form of your husband's sacrifice, how do you see that?
1: Oh, goodness, my husband always says, he's like, oh, when people ask you this, (laughs) he's like, I hope you can keep your emotions in check. Um, It's difficult for me. I'd be a hypocrite to say that they don't have a right because in this country, you know, we have the freedom of speech, and um, that's the beauty, and that's what he died fighting to protect, to keep this country as amazing as it is. Um, But hard for me to see that during the national anthem and during the flag because when his this flag his the flag on his coffin was folded up and handed to me, they said this flag represents the country that your husband died protecting. It's not they didn't say you know a political party, they didn't say the president. Right. You know, they said this country. And so to me The flag represents this country, and you know, is it's not perfect, and there you know, things need to change, and 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 stuff like that. I'm not not opposed to um, some change and and understanding you know each other better, but I definitely think that there's a different time and a place, in my personal opinion.
0: Well, sure. Yeah, I think you said that very very aptly, and I agree with you. I feel it's. I, th- I feel it's very misguided for people to disrespect an anthem and the flag when those two things are symbols of the nation that gives them the ability to freak speak or f- speak freely, where in it. most places of the world you can't do that, or to think freely, where in most places of the world you can't do that, or to protest in the streets, not beat people up, mind you, but protest in the streets where in many places in the world you can't do that freely. So it seems Awfully hypocritical for them to criticize the system that gives them the ability to do that.
1: I completely agree. Yes. short
0: Yeah, I, I, we're only going to keep you for a couple minutes here uh, remaining, but I want uh, you to tell people where they can get a hold of your book.
1: Okay, um, so next week it releases um, everywhere. Amazon, right now it's still so pre-order on Amazon, um, Target, anywhere books can be sold. But they can also, if by some chance you wanted an autographed copy, which still kind of cracks me up about myself, <laughs> um, you can go to our, my publisher, which is ballastbooks.com, and order through them, and we can get out a personalized or autographed copy to you that way.
0: If people are experiencing the same kind of loss you have, and it may not be from a military incident, it could be some, from something, I mean, we've got a nation of people mourning from a, a pandemic that is claiming a lot of lives. What kind of advice would you give them to deal with it?
1: I'd say first and foremost, you need to seek counseling, even if you don't think you do. I think it it's definitely helps in some way, shape, or form to really deal with the different emotions, understand the different emotions, and um, to be as honest as you can with friends and family about your feelings. And then also, obviously, being a believer, I think God um, is and having faith helps tremendously um, when you're dealing with um, such a tragedy and such loss.
0: Char, you're a very courageous woman, and if uh, you would do me a favor, favor, because I think I would guess you probably still— Uh, keep Jacques in your prayers and communicate with him that way. Please thank him for his service to the country and his sacrifice of everything. Um, And and the same to you. Thank you so much for being such a great American and agreeing to come on the show and telling your story.
1: Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. It was an honor.
0: All right. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back. We'll bring our second guest of the evening in again. uh, The second part of the show, we'll be talking with Frank Joseph. He'll be talking about high technology of ancient cultures it's beyond reality and we'll be right back looking for our guests book go to amazon.com slash shop slash jvj taps you know that last conversation is a good reminder while this nation seems to go through its little tantrum whatever's going on around this country particularly in our major cities we have to remember there are good men and women out there defending our freedoms fighting for our way of life And loving and respecting this country, and they deserve a lot of credit, particularly when they read the headlines of what's going on back home. Um, And by the way, just again, uh, Char's book is called A Beautiful Tragedy, A Navy SEAL's Widow's Permission to Grieve and a Prescription for Hope. And as she said, it's uh, available for pre-order right now on Amazon. So you can check that out. And what a great woman. And thank you so much again, Char, for being here. Um, We're excited as well to bring back a guest. Uh, Frank Joseph has been on the program before. He is, of course, an author. I think when Frank was here last, we were talking about his book about military encounters with extraterrestrials and UFOs. Um, Tonight, we're going to talk about ancient technologies of ancient civilizations. Uh, Frank, welcome back to Beyond Reality. It's such a great uh, uh, honor to have you back with us
2: tonight pleasure is all mine. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well,
0: before we get into this discussion about ancient technologies, I want to get your opinion because I think the last time you were on, we were talking about your book about military encounters. If it wasn't, is that right? I think that's what we talked
2: about last. Yes, that's correct.
0: Obviously, in the time since you were on the program, there's been some revelations and admissions from uh, the U.S. Defense Department and the U.S. military, plus some people that worked kind of on the inside, that there might be more going on there than they've admitted to up until now. What are your thoughts on all these uh, news stories and, and kind of hints of things going on that are currently being revealed?
2: Oh well, I think it's extremely encouraging, and it's far more than hints. I don't have. Uh, you're kind of catching me off guard a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sorry, I, about I, that. I wasn't prepared for this. <laughs> but um, the uh, gentleman you're talking about, whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, is a former uh, Defense Department official who had a pretty high ranking. I, I forgot what it was, but he was he was pretty uh, much into the high up into the system, and it was remarkable uh, the story that or the interview. ...that he gave to the uh, United Press International, which went out, of course, on, on the wire to everybody else. And he says uh, that, even <laughs> took me by surprise, he says uh, there are literally thousands, he used the word thousands, of sightings, verifiable sightings taking place every year. And I thought it was like about a little under a thousand, but he said there are thousands... And uh, he he spoke quite openly that this they represent technologies that belong to another high culture that does not belong to the Earth, that they are in possession of uh, technologies which co- utterly defy us. We don't know what these things are. So I thought, well, wow, that's almost as good as it can get. I was really quite surprised that he'd be so forthright in coming out after so many decades literally decades of uh, denial, and anybody that attempted to discuss the possibilities even of uh, extraterrestrial intelligence were, of course, um, consigned to the loony bin. And now we have some pretty strong government uh, acknowledgement of this thing uh, coming out. Um, My only conclusion, to make a a long story short, my conclusion from this is that uh, we're in a process in which Uh, there is going going to be full disclosure. And it cannot be sudden, I guess. Uh, At least that's the way that the officials look at it. But I think we're seeing a gradual but uh, accelerating disclosure. So we can look forward in the future uh, where there's uh, going to be official admission that this is a real thing and that's there's probably communication of some kind going on
0: so this is kind of uh to use one metaphor the tip of the iceberg burger another de- metaphor might be that we're kind of they're kind of dipping their toe in the water here
2: yes uh, quite a bit as a matter of fact and so it's very encouraging and um it's, it's really good to know
0: do you think um people like bob lazar has uh, changed the dynamic some with the work they've done
2: boy about bob lazar i really don't know i know that uh Stanton Friedman, who I have a yeah. great deal of respect for, uh, did not uh, feel that uh, Lazar was all that credible. Yeah. So, But I don't know. I can't just, just go on his authority. Um, I, I have to admit my ignorance there.
0: Yeah, well, credible or not, I think that it started a discussion, if nothing else.
2: Yes, that's correct. And uh, that discussion continues now at uh, pretty high levels. Mm-hmm. So I don't think the skeptics or the uh, Hard-bitten critics can say anymore that, oh, this is just a lot of hogwash and nonsense. I mean, you've got now the Pentagon, the United States Navy, the Defense Department. It's getting pretty good. So um, I, I think that uh, we have a lot to look forward to in that direction.
0: I think you're right, and it's encouraging. It's it's going to be. I think we have some exciting times ahead. Hopefully, it's all absolutely. Hopefully, it's good and stuff.
2: Better, I think that talking about things like this are far more productive and uh, really more culturally enriching than all of the uh, obsession with all of the really negative things mm. that uh, people are obsessed with these days. And it's kind of uh, it's a good counterweight, I think, uh, to get our minds off of. Uh, this absolute blackness that uh people are obsessed with these
0: yeah, days. Yeah, I agree. Um so turning to this, uh, the other topic, uh, the one that we had planned on talking about tonight, I, I, didn't, I apologize if I caught you off guard. I was, you know. Oh, no, no, that's
2: great. <laughs> it I, I keeps me up to the marker. It should anyway.
0: <laughs> you know, so most people have an understanding of history. There were some early civilizations that did some pretty cool things, but, um, you know, they did them with a lot of muscle and a lot of ropes and logs and whatever uh, they had available. Uh, the Roman Empire came in, did some pretty cool things. It collapsed. There was a thousand years of darkness. Then after that, there was a renaissance, technology, science, things started to be rebirthed, and here we are today with some amazing things. But you have a different view.
2: Well, actually, that view isn't all that invalid. Uh, my view uh, was uh, sparked by all these wonderful discoveries that are taking place today, uh, re-examination of some of the Uh, technology available to the ancients. It wasn't all just pulling on ropes. There was a lot of that, too, but there was some really highly advanced science, uh, applied practical science going on in the ancient world, some of it which we only just recently have caught up with. Uh, some of these uh, innovations that took place in Rome and Egypt and so forth were literally thousands of years ahead of their times, and some of the things that they have done are inexplicable and are still ahead of the the uh, technology that we are in um, control of today. So I I'm, I think it's a fascinating uh, point of view when we are considering the ancients as not just being superstitious ridden. Uh, tyrants and so forth, as they're usually portrayed so erroneously in Hollywood. Uh, instead, you had people that were inventing things that uh, were, were just amazing. Just to give you a small example, um, I was surprised to discover that the first alarm clock, was the uh, first known alarm clock, was invented by a very famous man. It was Plato and that Plato was uh, upset because too many of his students, so the story goes, were uh, sleeping too late and missing the early part of his classes. So he actually invented a uh, a kind of a water clock that set off an alarm, and this is the first known alarm clock in history. And subsequent uh, improvements on his design were used... Through uh, the, the Roman era, the Greco Roman era. We don't hear much about it because it was considered, like, alarm clocks today, not all that particularly important or worth memorializing. But nonetheless, when the Roman civilization fell, even the technology for the alarm clock <laughs> was gone. <laughs> and it wasn't until the late 19th century. In other words, we're talking about, you know, like, 17, 1,600 years before yeah. even something is fundamental as an alarm clock is reinvented.
0: I think people have a lot of difficulty understanding what that dark period was. I mean, it was literally a thousand years of no progress. Well, not absolutely no progress, but virtually no progress. Um, And so many science, technologies and ideas that had existed were completely just lost, as you said, uh, during that time.
2: They were not only lost, they were hunted down and destroyed. And the reason why was because there was a kind of a fundamental um, religious intolerance uh, that is difficult uh, for us to to comprehend today. Anything, absolutely anything associated with the so-called pagan world was condemned as demonic and satanic. So if you were to even bring up something, let's say you were living in the uh in medieval uh germany or something and you say well look uh it turns out that we have some scraps of documents here that indicate that Plato in <laughs> an alarm clock well, you'd come under suspicion as being politically incorrect and uh you would be brought up before uh, the inquisition for why you interested why you glorifying the pagan past and that actually did take place that there was this uh Attitude that anything that was before uh, the fall of the Roman Empire and the Roman world, the Western world, those things were all inspired by the devil. And so you had a society that uh, was subject to the backwardness and the, uh, the diseases and so forth that were rampant, the Black Plague and so on, because instead of the high medicine that the ancients had, You had no medicine. You had just rank superstition and the triumph of these diseases. So that, I think, is part of a much uh, bigger story than just the uh, wonderful achievements of the ancients. But uh, the fragility of civilization, that civilization, just because you have it, doesn't mean it's going to last forever. Right you don 't uh, maintain it 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 will collapse, and when a civilization collapses it 's not a pretty sight. It takes everything with it yeah, and uh, we're seeing that in our own cities today. there are many parts mm-hmm. of American cities that are are no longer civilized yep. they're ruins, and uh, that's that's not a good sign yeah
0: you know, you're absolutely right, and I think people also uh, don't stop to consider because we don 't have to. That the, the world we live in today, the, the modern world, with all the modern technologies that we enjoy and conveniences that we enjoy, is only a couple hundred years old. It's only a few hundred years old. We're talking about a, 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 a period of history that lasted over a thousand years. And to your point about religious persecution of some of these ideas, when and where they, uh, they were revealed, we know stories of people like Galileo and other early scientists that presented ideas that were uh, contrary to church teachings and they were imprisoned at the very least, and some were um, executed for their ideas. So science was continued to be persecuted by the church up until rather recently.
2: Yes, yeah, some would say it still is. Yes. But, uh, I, I don't want to make a political uh, argument about this, and I don't want to offend it into people's uh, sensitivities when it comes to these things, but concentrate on instead on some of the great things that were achieved And one of the things that really uh, has come to light that's been of particular relevance to our time uh, is the research that has been done into a discovery that was made about seven years ago. Um, It was at John Hopkins University, of all places. There was a study being done with some new electronic technology on many of the mummies, uh, that are uh, preserved at uh, the Cairo Museum in Egypt. And they have literally thousands, tens of thousands of mummies from the first dynasty through the last, spanning a period of more than three, uh, more than 3,000 years. And uh, the remarkable thing that came to light was that none of these mummies, thousands of them, literally tens of thousands, not one of them had cancer. Not one had died of cancer. I have to correct myself. A few, very few had cancer, and that they appear to have been cured of cancer. Oh, really? How was that possible? How? Because it was known that in the ancient world uh, there were populations of people that suffered and died from cancer. Uh, mammals, uh, even dinosaurs, uh, have had cancer, and it's now known. So it's not uh, it's a pretty uh, ubiquitous uh, disease. But the ancient Egyptians were cancer-free for thousands of years. How is that possible? Well, uh, when uh, further investigations were undertaken, it wasn't too long before they found the answer. And that answer may have a terrific impact on our time today. And the answer came out just really while I was writing this book, and I had to make a special annotation for it. The reason why the ancient Egyptians were able to save themselves from cancer was something that they traded for, that they went very far for, they sailed very far for, and that this substance did not exist in Egypt, had to be imported from South Africa. That's quite a long voyage back in in those days. And that substance was frankincense. Hmm. It is now found that frankincense has cancer curative qualities. They've been able to isolate those qualities, those compounds. And the ancient Egyptians, we have known for hundreds of years, the ancient Egyptians at their temple ceremonies, which were public affairs, mostly public affairs, they burned large quantities of incense. And this incense was frankincense. Frankincense is a particular resin. It doesn't burn exactly like paper. Uh, but it will smoke, and it 's very fragrant, so it was always assumed that the ancient Egyptians would burn frankincense and this by the way, was by the way was picked up by the Roman Catholic Church, they burned uh, frankincense as well in their church ceremonies, but not to the extent that the Egyptians did it they had burned incense in all their public activities, and now science is trying to isolate these uh, recognized uh, elements of frankincense, these substances within frankincense that will have a cured effect. And they've already had a number of tests, ongoing tests, that frankincense has this anti-cancer quality. So it's remarkable. Here's something that was used and discovered in the ancient world, died out almost 2,000 years ago, and now is being found to affect in a very positive way our world. This process... Has been going on since the Renaissance. The Dark Ages that you mentioned ended because scholars were beginning to find bits and pieces of the greatness of the Greco-Roman world and the world before the Greco-Roman world, as far as the bronze, as far back as the Bronze Age and even the, the New Stone Age, the Neolithic period. And they began to find traces of this greatness, and by patching it together. Eventually, the Renaissance bloomed, and that is where our civilization our modern civilization really begins with the Renaissance because before that was just this prolonged period, centuries of darkness and ignorance and fear, and the Renaissance began to change slowly change that we're still going through this Renaissance process, certainly the discovery of these cancer uh liberating Substances found in frankincense uh, are something that is going to be applied in our own society for the cure of cancer. A very simple cure, just inhaling this frankincense. It's remarkable. Yeah.
0: So, so Frank, did did the Egyptian were the Egyptians aware that it had this property? And were they doing it intentionally, or was it just a um, a consequence of something they were doing in a matter of practice? That's
2: an excellent question, and according to the uh, researchers, there were some researchers from uh, New Delhi University which were focused specifically on that. Did the Egyptians understand this, or did they burn it just because it smelled very uh, pleasantly, had a nice fragrance? No, they were able to determine that the Egyptians knew what they were dealing with because sometimes the uh, frankincense was ground into a powder and mixed into a kind of a uh, an oral substance that was given by Egyptian physicians for specific treatments uh, related to cancer causing uh, uh, conditions. So, yeah, they they did it. they understood it because they isolated it. There are other indications that the um, medical personnel. Especially, especially of Egypt, of Egypt, but of other countries as well, Assyria and so forth, understood the cause, the causal relationship between these substances and the suffering that was uh, uh, being uh, uh, endured by their uh, clients, their their patients. Uh, there's another uh, instance of that was Egyptian brain surgery. Egyptian brain surgery was of such a high level, it was not uh, equaled until the late 19th century. That was about the the, the first time that, that the level of, especially the uh, development of the instruments used in brain surgery, uh, gained a, a certain finesse or sophistication they hadn't had since Egyptian times. Egyptian eye uh, surgery... Uh, is is at least on a par with what we have today. Their knowledge of the human eye was spectacular. Their knowledge of the human eye was so highly advanced that they were able to reproduce in, core, in certain types of quartz crystal the human eye with such accuracy that it, it still excels what's being done today. There's an uh, article that I have that I quote in the book about these... Uh, this, these two researchers that have been gone into these glass eyes that the Egyptians made for uh, people that had lost an eye, or else for statues. The realism of these statues. And they examined the uh, reproduction of the eyes' um, structure, its anatomy. And they said that it really surpasses anything that has been done today. That they do not know how all these anatomical details were even known. Some of them are microscopic. So that that indicates that the Egyptians must have had access to some type of device that would enable them to use something similar to a microscope. There's just no way you can get away from the fact that they did operate highly advanced optics, otherwise they would not have been able to reproduce uh, these superb reproductions of the human eye, which are still unexcelled. So it's reading about these things, I found them very exciting and, and sad at the same time, because if you have that level of technology that high, 2,000 and more years ago, what if that level of technology had been allowed to progress yeah. unhindered, where there had been no dark ages, all the way to our time. it's we, we cannot even imagine how far advanced we would be today without the fall of the Greco-Roman world. If that had been allowed to continue and allowed to develop, uh, where we would stand today as a civilization would far outstrip anything we can imagine. Yeah, and, did,
0: uh, did the Egyptians um, keep that uh, that technology? I don't know what the word is—maybe proprietary—or were were there other civilizations that were contemporary to the Egyptians that shared in it?
2: Uh, the Egyptians—that's uh, another uh, good point—and uh, suggests to me that you've done some reading on that because uh, the Egyptians were very proprietary about it. They regarded this knowledge as sacred. Mm-hmm and that you needed to go not just to a school. You had to enlist in a kind of a guild or secret society. Uh, that information was not generally shared, and you could, took all kinds of oaths that you would not share this information uh, publicly um, to the point where you could, you could be uh, suffer a capital punishment. So the, they took it very seriously. This was totally different than the Greek point of view. The Greeks believed that it shall shall be very public, and uh, the Greeks themselves learned their medicine early from the Egyptians, but when they got home, they went public with it. And uh, so that really, we can see the beginning of our medical profession, uh, our medical developments early on with with, uh, ancient Greece. This would be like uh, post-Bronze Age Greece, um, this would be like from late Homeric times, about 800 BC. That's really the beginning of our modern public medical uh, facilities and uh, and our development. The Chinese were also uh, pretty open about it publicly. The thing that really impressed me about uh, more than anything else, more than their brain surgery or eye surgery, far more than any anything like that, was what the Romans and the Chinese equally achieved in terms of health care. Now, there's a very modern thing that's sure. very controversial today. The uh, The Roman health care was of such an incredibly high level, and it was free. This meant that anyone could get the benefit of health care. The, re- the reason uh, how why it worked was for two reasons. Number one... The, the Greeks also considered health care, like the Egyptians, very sacred, although, as I say, they went public about it. But it was a sacred trust, and it was in charge, uh, the, the, it was uh, patronized by one of their gods, God Apollo. And so you swore to God Apollo that you would uh, devote your life to the healing process. And so to accept money for uh, healing was considered uh Unethical. <laughs> Not exactly like our doctors today, right. uh, But they were provided for by the state. Um, first of all, they were provided for by towns and cities. So when you would, and, and you didn't have to be a Roman citizen, you just had to be a human being, you know, you had to be a member of the human race. And uh, if you made your way to Italy and you went to a Roman town, you could walk into uh, any medical facility and you were given free treatment. There were some doctors that were hired uh, uh, privately. They were expensive. Those were uh, specialists that uh, were uh, usually um, working for uh, very wealthy families, but you didn't need them. Those were just um, people that were extremely good in their procedures and uh, uh, were considered experts in their field, but there was this free healthcare system. China had a very similar situation. They had hospitals, large buildings. We're going back now with ancient China. You know, like about 100 BC to about maybe seven or eight hundred AD before they went through their dark ages, their civilizations fell. But before then, uh, the, the Chinese civil, the Chinese medical establishment was extremely advanced. And health care was um, of a level that was uh, not seen again for a long time after the fall of those civilizations. But I thought, what a wonderful organization that was. The Greeks also um, pioneered things like uh, antibacterial um, procedures. Um, When you had a a, a sword wound, for example, say a bad sword cut, say in your, your arm, a long cut they had a, a very quick procedure, and that was to fill the wound with honey. You yeah. filled it with, with honey, and then you put it, made a poultice over it, and then you put uh, uh, a mixture of cinnamon and something else on top of it. The, the cinnamon was to keep uh, bugs off, to keep the uh, the flies and stuff off. That worked. And the honey has now been found... This was known at that time, totally forgotten, now rediscovered. When you put honey in a serious wound like that, uh, not only does it give give immediate comfort, but it also stops infection immediately. Mm -hmm. Also, the enzymes in honey begin the healing process faster than anything else. So this was just another example uh, among numerous examples of how far advanced Medical science was, and they were talking about a period. Well, that the idea of the honey that goes back, I'm sure, to the late Bronze Age. So we're talking about about one thousand two hundred, one thousand three hundred BC. These procedures. So it's just, yeah, uh, it's uh, very interesting.
0: Honey and cinnamon also sounds rather delicious. Um.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it, it just it sounds kind of pleasant, I suppose, <laughs> but it, it worked, and it still works. Yeah. It's just a a kick uh, for me when I was researching this to find all these uh, modern researchers here in this century, in the 21st century, that are just discovering these things, and they're excited about it, and they're getting it out, but most people don't seem to uh, find out about it or or read about it. I had to hunt some of these articles down in all kind of obscure medical magazines and so forth, and um, I tried to make it into a, a popular book, in other words, the book that I've written is not for specialists or scholars or anything like that. It's just for ordinary people like myself who want to appreciate uh, the great things that were achieved in the past.
0: Yeah. I imagine uh, pharmaceuticals companies can't make a whole lot of money if they were using honey to treat uh, wounds or, or frankincense to treat cancer. Um, And it's funny, I actually have a guest coming on in the next few weeks that's going to talk about cancer as a business, as a big business. Um, and uh, I'm going to bring this up to him because I think that'll be interesting. Let's go back to talking talking about uh, the ancient Egyptians for a minute too, because anytime you mention the ancient Egyptians, you immediately think of amazing feats of engineering and building, particularly the pyramids, but there are so many examples of, of uh, astonishing uh, structures and uh, engineering feats that the ancient Egyptians accomplished. What's at play here, Frank? Is, is it, uh, you know, camels pulling ropes and slaves pushing uh, blocks of stone on uh, logs across deserts?
2: no because the precision necessary for the construction of these uh, monumental features uh far outstripped even the need for that sort of cumbersome and uh, really inefficient uh, manner of labor um the great pyramid for example or i guess all the pyramids are uh, described as having been built with ramps for example and stories of slaves hauling these great blocks of stone up these ramps. Well, it's been proved mathematically that it is impossible to carry a 25- or 125-ton block on rollers. The rollers would be squashed. It's impossible. Then when the uh, some aerial ph- photography revealed that, yes, indeed, there are ramps uh, that were used long ago uh, uh, to at work on the Great Pyramids, it was found that the ramps, uh, when they were dating was done on them, uh, that these ramps were made by uh, Muslims uh, to tear off some of wow. the limestone casings of the uh, pyramid after long after Egypt had fallen. So that whole story about the ramps has been completely, utterly debunked. There is a very uh, great um, um, construction engineer today. His name is Christopher Dunn, and he runs his own. Uh, construction factory in Danville, Illinois. He's a master craftsman. He's from uh, England, and he has devoted his life to understanding, trying to understand how is it that the ancient Egyptians really did build these structures. And he doesn't look at these structures from the point of view of an Egyptologist or a historian. He looks at them purely from the point of view of a master craftsman. How would these? How could these things have been made? And he has found unequivocal evidence that the ancient Egyptians had power tools. Now, what powered those tools? Who knows? We use electricity, maybe they use something else. He has been able to identify specific saw cuts, the same that he uses with machine tools that are found on virtually all of the monumental structures throughout Egypt, across the dynasties. he's found evidence of high-speed polishing that could only have left its mark in a very specific way. Now, Egyptologists know nothing about this sort of... Uh, identifiable markings left by specific tools. He does, and he says, I can show you a mirror example, the same thing in my, in my factory, the way we do things, the way the Egyptians did it. He has been able to um, speculate, or actually more than speculate, to reconstruct some of the machines that the Egyptians used. One of the machines they had was an enormous saw, This saw had probably a diameter of about 20 feet, and it was uh, powered by water. The Egyptians were um, marvelous irrigationists. Even the greatest skeptic among us uh, is aware that the ancient Egyptians understood water management better than anybody, and so they were able to use water in such a way to power these gigantic saws. That were able to cut through stone that was otherwise through solid granite uh, with ease and precision, and he's been able to show mathematically how this can and be done, and how in fact it was done. And then he shows the in his books he's able to show the uh, same type of saw cuts. The book I'm referring to, especially, is called "Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt" by Christopher Dunn. And I based some of my uh, chapters on his work, which needs, I thought, uh, to be brought up. But people then say, "Well, where are these machines? How can we don't find them?" Well, when we build a, we make a building today. Do we leave the machines standing around? No, the machines wear out. We get rid of them, replace them with something else. It's the building that counts, not the machines. So the buildings still stand. It makes a lot of sense that the machines would not be saved. There's no reason to save them. They were used not to be preserved, but to build these structures. So there's no doubt that the Egyptians had uh, access to some form of power tools that could have uh, manufactured these remarkable structures, which, by the way, cannot be uh, reproduced by uh, the... uh, stone hammers and the copper chisels that uh, Egyptologists still insist uh, were, must have been made that way.
0: Um, this is kind of an aside, uh, but I need to ask the question. Using the pyramids as an example, the Great Pyramid, um, were they the result and the product of technically advanced or te- technologically advanced tools, or were they themselves some kind of technically advanced tool?
2: Another interesting question, uh, That's uh, I saved that for my last chapter. Um, again, Christopher Dunn, he wrote a book that came out about 30 years ago called The Giza Power Plant. And again, he looks at the internal workings of the Great Pyramid, and uh, he finds that it doesn't resemble at all a funeral or mortuary temple the, that the Egyptologists tell us it is. And when I went to Egypt for the first time... Um, I, of course, I've been studying it since I was a boy, and it was a great thrill to go there. But nonetheless, when you get inside the Great Pyramid, it's totally unlike any other Egyptian building. Any other Egyptian building, as probably our listeners are aware, is covered with hieroglyphs and beautiful paintings, sculpture. It's highly adorned, profuse detail everywhere. Nothing like that in the Great Pyramid. Absolutely barren. Not a single hieroglyph. No statues. Uh, no beautiful mortuary work. Nothing. Everything is absolutely barren. And nothing has ever been there. There's no indication of paintings or anything. The impression you get when you go into the Great Pyramid, if you can clear your mind of everything you've read about it and just approach it as a place you've never seen before, the impression is is like you're walking into a machine, like you're walking into maybe a, a generator of some, a generator house. Everything is strictly utilitarian, strictly barren and spartan, totally non-temple-like, uh, certainly... And then you go into the uh, king's chamber, the so-called king's chamber, and to get there you have to go through a very narrow corridor. Can you imagine trying to maneuver a gigantic king's sarcophagus into a tiny little room through this cramped corridor that would never allow a procession? What kind of a king, what kind of a pharaoh would want to be buried in a, a puny little tiny space like that? It doesn't make sense. So the Great Pyramid, that's something that could be a complete uh, program in itself. Yeah. But when I looked at the Great Pyramid as a, and a cutaway, and you can do this, I guess, in many books. They show what's inside the Great Pyramid. You see the cutaway, and when I looked at it, I figured, like, this looks familiar somehow, but I don't recognize it exactly. doesn't look like it like a burial chamber by any means. It doesn't look like a temple, but it looks familiar somehow. And I realized what I I, what I was comparing it to. I went to the Encyclopedia Britannica and opened it up to the page that I wanted, and lo and behold, I found a parallel that looks very, very close to the inside of the Great Pyramid, and that is a transducer if you look at a cutaway of an ordinary transducer and a cutaway of the Great Pyramid, you can see all of its fundamental elements paralleling each other just about exactly. And it, what does a transducer do? A transducer takes mechanical energy and transforms it into electrical energy, just like the old uh, record player that we used to have, the, the long-playing record player. Mm-hmm. You had the needle, and the needle would... It would have these vibrations from the grooves, and the, these vibrations would go into the needle, and then they would be changed into electrical impulses, and you'd have music coming out to your loudspeaker. Or today, if you want to start a fire, you have these uh, fire sticks, where you pull a trigger, and inside uh, the mechanism, there's a this trigger hits a, a crystal, and the crystal sparks, and it creates a fire, and you can start a fire in your fireplace. I think that the Great Pyramid is a transducer, and that's the same basic conclusion that uh, Christopher Dunn came to, independent of myself, and uh, I believe that it was a kind of a geotransducer. It transformed mechanical energy into electrical energy, and the mechanical energy that it was sitting on was one of the greatest seismic faults in North Africa. Egypt used to be plagued by numerous earthquakes, not so much anymore. But uh, the earthquakes that uh, plagued Egypt were so bad that you couldn't really set up your civilization there because if you're constantly rebuilding, it doesn't make for a very uh, stable society. But the, the Nile Valley, of course, is very rich agriculturally. So we have to do something about these earthquakes. And I believe that they built a geotransducer which transformed the uh, mechanical energy of seismic activity into a diffuse electrical energy. And how, if that was harnessed or not, I don't know. I don't claim to, to know that. Perhaps it was. But I believe that the Great Pyramid, fundamentally, in a nutshell is a geotransducer. It's a machine that we still could use. Uh, Not a machine, exactly. It's a device, an instrument. And that instrument is to ameliorate the worst effects of seismic activity. It's it's an anti-earthquake machine.
0: Wow. All right, so I've got to ask this question as well, because there's been a lot of discussion about this. Uh, Whether we're talking about the ancient Egyptians or we're talking about another ancient culture with what we would call... uh, technological advancements, are these the products of their their civilizations, or were they helped in some fashion?
2: Well, I think that they, uh, they probably were like ourselves. Uh, human nature, I find, really doesn't change fundamentally over time, as different as they may have been. Uh, I believe that they inherited from previous generations and possibly even previous civilizations certain levels of technology that they built upon that they developed and refined, and that the same process that we're using today. I don't believe that the Great Pyramid was just uh, built out of nothing, uh, without any precedence. There were many before, and they probably no longer exist, or were misidentifying uh, some that uh, helped out in the early beginnings of the pyramid building. But uh, no, I think that there were always precursors, always precursors going back. You know, the oldest building now in the world is found to be in um, gilbeki Tepe, in um, Turkey. And it's a marvelous building, but it, it can't be the first because it's already showing signs of the sophistication, bas relief astronomical orientation. You just don't develop things like that overnight. So our roots as a civilized people uh, go much further back than we have ever imagined.
0: One of the things that we pride ourselves on, Frank, is the... Uh Something essentially uh, started, although it wasn't necessarily started by the Wright brothers, but certainly made practical by the Wright brothers. I'm talking about manned flight. Were we the first?
2: Uh, no, absolutely not. Although uh, some of the earliest was uh, were pilots, or if you want to call them or aviators, were in America, but not North America. Uh, There's an uh, immense uh, amount of evidence that's come about, uh, thanks to specifically to a man by the name of Jim Woodman, who was, um, I believe he's still alive. Um, he was a hot air balloon specialist, and uh, he was able to show that the ancient Peruvians, uh, these were people that were before the Incas, who lived in uh, on the, uh, the Pacific coastal plain of South America, were able to master human flight through hot air ballooning. These are known as orthostats, and these orthostats, rather, these orthostats are fundamentally just large envelopes uh, made of light material, and that these uh, light envelopes were heated in such a way that they could provide a temporary flight to several hundred feet. And I think that his work is uh, extremely convincing. His uh, Experiments have shown that the ancients had the capacity to do this, and they certainly have the the inspiration to do it. There's a a long uh, series of sites called the Nazca Lines that are familiar probably to many of our listeners. Mm -hmm. And the Nazca Lines represent the largest art gallery on Earth, literally on Earth. And they represent uh, different animals, hummingbirds, whales, monkeys, and other fabulous creatures and so forth, frigate birds and so on. And they can only be seen from the proper perspective of altitude. And when I visited there some years ago, uh, it was clear that there are no mountains in the immediate vicinity. There's no high prominence. You can climb to look down on this marvelous artwork. And if you stand at the base of these um, great drawings, you can't make them out at all. They make no sense whatsoever. Matter of fact, you can't even see them. But when you get into the air about 400 or 300 feet, then they all become uh, in perfect perspective, and it's a marvelous thing to see. So I think that the ancient Peruvians that uh, were in control of Peru before the Incas, I think that they mastered flight for religious reasons. I mean, it wasn't like you were chartering a flight from Cuzco to Lima or something, you know. (laughs) But you could—I think that was probably the prerogative of the wealthy classes— or the um, certainly the, the priestly classes, so that you could do, take a ride and you could see uh, this wonderful handiwork.
0: You know, we, we've been talking about civilizations that span several continents, you know, whether it's the Egyptians or the Central Americans or the Chinese. Uh, you know, it's, it's, from my understanding, unlikely they were communicating, but they were all rather advanced. Or was there some kind of communication between them?
2: Well, I think it's clear that there really was this communication. Uh, These um, NASCA um, orthostats, I'm talking about these Mm -hmm. hot air balloons, Mm -hmm. Uh, they seem to have been referenced in a couple of Chinese um, um, documents that were from that same time period, about 200 B.C., and I cite those documents in a couple of chapters. So I think that... uh, yeah, there was there was definitely a communication. I don't believe that people were hermetically sealed off from each other, that the great oceans of the world were not barriers between people, but rather highways that connected them. There are too many commonalities, uh, too many themes that are uh, occurring all around the world, sometimes at the same time, contemporaneous with each other. And this indicates that there was communication going on.
0: Did you find evidence of... Uh some sort of heat ray weapon?
2: That is a terrific story. It's extremely well-documented, and uh, it it really needs to be better uh, publicized. I was very happy to write about it. One of the greatest scientific minds in history was Archimedes, and he was uh, a Greek scientist, certainly on the same level as Leonardo da Vinci. And uh, he was loyal to the Greek city of Syracuse, which was uh, located at that time about two hundred BC again that same period mm-hmm. uh, on the uh, on Sicily, and the Romans were besieging Syracuse. The Greeks were in a very bad position militarily, and he Archimedes invented a heat ray, and this heat ray was done through sheer mathematics. He was able to uh, position a number of uh, polished mirrors. Or shields, it's we're not clear exactly what it is, but probably some kind of a highly polished uh, bronze or brass uh, object. He was then able to calculate the uh, uh, angle of the sun in relationship to the attacking Roman vessels. And he was able to set several of these vessels on fire. He was able to actually kill quite a few of the invading Romans. He saved his country, temporarily at least, from the Roman invasion. The uh, experiment for Archimedes' heat ray, which was a, a kind of a uh, solar cannon, it's referred to as a solar cannon, there have been two modern experiments trying to reproduce what he did. And both of these experiments, one in Greece, the other in the United States, completely independent from each other, uh, show that they worked extremely well again. But then in modern times, uh, these recreators had to use computers in order to establish the precise angle in relationship to the sun of these polished mirrors. But when they are Brought into that alignment and, and uh, focused according to Archimedes' specifications, they will indeed uh, set on fire a wooden ship or a sail. So it uh, it really worked. He, his heat ray did work and was a an operational weapon, a weapon of mass destruction, as far as the moment wow. saw it.
0: You you've written a lot, Frank. You've you've got a number of books uh, to your credit. If someone was new to your work. Where do you recommend they start? Which with which book? The 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 newest, or or is there something that is is a bit of a precursor to your work?
2: Well, I don't know. I didn't start out that way. Um, I think this book might be an, a good introduction because it touches on a number of societies and different countries and civilizations, and it doesn't really um, push anyone as as the best or the earliest. And it provides, I think, uh, some of the most attractive. Uh, achievements of the ancients. So maybe uh, ancient high-tech is a, a good introduction. I've never thought of that before. But ancient high-tech, I think, is a, um, provides a, a nice overview of uh, how great uh, these societies really were and what a pity it was that they were all lost.
0: What about electricity? You, you mentioned uh, that the pyramids may have harnessed and produced uh, some form of energy, possibly electricity, but was it ever used in a practical application that you're aware of?
2: Well, from very early on in the modern science of Egyptology, there was always a question of how was it possible that the ancient Egyptian craftsmen were able to go into these temples that went really and, and, and burial chambers very far underground, and paint all of these marvelous hieroglyphic scenes with such detail and uh, to to do all this uh, very close workmanship in absolutely dark conditions. Um, So it was assumed, well, they brought torches down, right? And you will even see sometimes um, illustrations trying to portray the ancient Egyptian workers Mm -hmm. as uh, doing their work by torchlight. Well, that was found very quickly to be totally impossible because if you have a number of torches down in these chambers, they'll eat up all the oxygen and you'll all die of suffocation in no time. On top of that, no evidence of any uh, burning on the the ceiling. If you're going to have a, a torch going, you're going to have some smudge marks on the ceiling. None of that was ever found. So, some of the critics said, Oh, well, the Egyptians just cleaned up after each other. Well, then the researchers went back and they did tests on the ceiling and found that the ceilings had never been cleaned at all, never been mm. scrubbed at all. So, there is no indication that torches were ever used. Then it was thought that perhaps following Archimedes' idea, uh, we'll just keep uh, uh, focusing uh, sun rays reflecting them by mirrors into the, the temple work into the, into the uh, mortuary work of tombs and so on. Well, that arrangement was tried experimentally and found to be completely unacceptable, uh, impractical, did not work. So the question remains, how was it then that the ancient Egyptians were able to Go so deep into the earth, completely without any light source, any light source known whatsoever, and yet commit, uh, complete all this terrific uh, work that they did—the paintings, the hieroglyphs, and so forth. So, as we look into that, we see that the Egyptians indeed did have knowledge of electricity and did use it. The best—the best proof of that is in a place called Dendera. In Dendera, this is in the northern part of Egypt, there's a superb temple, a large temple complex, one of the oldest, still preserved and in pretty good shape. And on the walls of Dendera are representations, two representations of what appear to be light bulbs. Now, not like light bulbs that we screw into our uh, sockets but more resembling something called a Crookes tube, C R O O K E apostrophe S tube. A Crookes tube was invented in the mid to late 19th century as an early experimental device to uh, examine the properties of electricity. This was just before Edison got going. And these Crookes tubes, they create these rather snaky-looking electrical phenomena inside and they're simple electronic devices. And we believe, and as I tried to explain in the the chapter on the Egyptian dendera lights, as they're referred to, that these lights were used not for practical purposes, but were used for light shows, to impress the followers of uh, various religious cults Uh, and the magic uh, that is able to be reproduced through this uh, high technology that they had. Nonetheless, it indicates that the Egyptians did understand the practical application, or not to call it practical, the religious application of electricity, and uh, they we can assume that they extended it to working underground because there's no other explanation how the Egyptians could have achieved these subterranean masterpieces without proper lighting. And uh, so the lights do show conclusively that the Egyptians did grasp the concept of electricity and, uh, and were able to harness it, although they used it not just for the practical purposes of working in the uh, mortuaries, and their temples and their tombs, but uh, to put on a light show to impress the followers of their cults.
0: You know, one of the things about this topic that just fascinates me, and it, it's not even just discussing it, it's actually just paying attention to what's going on. We are constantly learning more about these ancient cultures and these ancient civilizations and finding out how impressive they really were. Your work, Frank, is is a big part of that. Um, but it's astonishing that in 2020, you know, after how many years? Uh, about 150 years of really looking into Egyptology. I think that's a, probably a, a pretty um, fair number. Um, that we're still learning stuff every day. Every day we're finding out how... Much more advanced these people were than we give them credit for,
2: yeah, and that I think that is really the exciting part of history is because you it's kind of humbling at the one time to think like oh we I thought we were the ones that used uh, You know, refrigeration before everybody else, and that but it turns out that they had highly advanced uh, refrigeration, or we invented air conditioning. But the Egyptians were using air conditioning in their homes and on the board their boats and their ships long before we ever thought about it. And um, but it's a different type, it isn't the type of um, air conditioning, for example, that we have today where we Plug it again into electrical socket. We use electricity for everything. The Egyptians, on the other hand, they had the same need to cool off, but they were they lived closer to nature, and so they used um, natural uh, means of achieving these things. And so their air, air conditioning was very simple. What they did uh, is that they would orient the roofs of their homes or their palaces. It didn't make any difference. Everybody had air conditioning in Egypt, and the way they had it this way is that there was a very small crawl space at the top of virtually every home, every building in Egypt, That at least every building in Egypt along the Nile. Because the Nile is very windy. Boy, I can tell you that. I had no idea until I spent some time there how windy it can get along the Nile, day and night. But that works quite well, because if you orient your home to that wind, which is very predictable, if you orient your home to that wind, and you use your crawl space to put in these certain uh, leaves, palm leaves, a very certain type of palm leaf, and you soak those palm leaves in water, when that, when that wind comes down the Nile, and it comes into that uh, crawl space, the wind goes over the, um, the palm leaves in the, in the water and then the, wa- the wind then carries the uh, droplets and, and kind of, left, not even in a spray, it's invisible mm-hmm. through a duct that goes through the rest of the house and the, you cool your house off day or night that way the ducts, by the way, were uh, uh, movable, they had vents just the same as as ours do today but there's an example where you don't have to worry about paying your electric bill uh, for your air conditioner. It's a very simple thing, but it works very, very well.
0: Frank, we're out of time. Uh, the book is called Ancient High Tech The Astonishing Scientific Achievements of Early Civilizations. Where can people find
2: it? Probably just going to Amazon.com. Uh, not too many bookstores anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> Amazon.com is about the last place right now where you can go and and get a copy. And I know that they sell it uh, at a lower price, so that's probably the best
0: place to get it. I love having you on, Frank, because it, first of all, it goes so fast, but the the topic is always fascinating and interesting to me. And uh, are all of your books available on Amazon? Can people find them all there?
2: I think so, yeah. I think they're all there. Some of them are out of print, but uh, there's a lot that are still up there. Yeah, they can go to Amazon.com and just uh, start off with... Uh, ancient high-tech. That's, I think that's a good way to begin.
0: Terrific. Well, thanks again for being here tonight, Frank. Uh, I hope you're staying safe amid all the craziness, and I look forward <laughs> to having you back at some point soon, too.
2: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. I always enjoy our conversations.